Good morning, everyone. Good to have you here in the service this morning. I really appreciate your presence. And I'm wondering, Merlin, do you happen to know, is there anybody else here that was there that day? Do you know of anybody? Does anybody besides Merlin remember that day? It's how we talk about it, that day. For those of you that don't know anything about that, let me tell you what happened. I was preaching in Grinder, just like you said, in the evening. And then every morning, that was back when I was young and full of vinegar, but um, I was over at the, at the school there preaching every morning. And on that Thursday morning, the entire school responded. We all stood around in the old gym, and it was a circle of students and teachers all the way around. And students were confessing to teachers, and teachers were confessing to students. It was the most glorious day. And it, it was so significant that there were a number of us who just simply referred to that, even today, yeah, it's over 40 years ago, and we still refer to that as that day. I remember we were at conference here one time, I think it was the time when conference was over there at um, Goshen College, I think that's, but it would have been a long time ago. And we were going through some very difficult times at home, and so I was a bit out of fix to begin with, you know, and then it was so terribly hot there that summer that people were actually going home because it was just too hot to stay there. And Charlotte and I had decided to go home as well. And we um, stopped at the Essen house to eat supper or dinner or whatever it was, going to eat something there. And while we were sitting here thinking without eating and thinking as well, we decided, you know what, we're going to, let's just stay here. Well, by then we'd given up our motel and couldn't find another one. And the phone inside the Essen house, and that's before the days of cell phones and all of that, you know. And, and so we had to find a phone, and the one in the Essen house didn't work. And they said, well, you can walk over to the motel. They have one over there. That'll work. And so we walked, I walked over there anyhow and tried to get that thing to work, and it wouldn't work, and I couldn't call, and I didn't have a room, and I was getting more frustrated by the moment and just about ready to come forth with something I'd need to apologize for. I was pretty close to it. I'll just have to tell you. Um, I'm, I'm actually dismayed by myself at times. You know, I'm, I'm, just a, I'm dismayed by how angry I can get and how, how short a period of time it takes me to get there. It's just it's a problem. But anyhow, that time I was right on the verge and there was a young lady behind the desk there at the, at the uh, whatever they call that, the motel there at the Essen House. And she saw what was happening and apparently saw my frustration. I don't know if the steam was right out of my ears or what. Anyhow, something was going on. And she very kindly spoke up and said, um, you can use the phone back here if you want to, behind the desk. She said, it, it works. You, you, I'll be glad you can use this one. And I was surprised. And I said, really? I, you, I, I can use that one back here? She said, sure. She said, I think I know who you are anyway. She said, I was there that day. I knew exactly what she meant, and was I ever grateful that when I was waxing carnal, the Lord kept it in check <laughs> and kept a big blot from appearing on my dossier. Well, yeah, or derriere, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> anyway, you know what? I really, I, I've been overwhelmed already this morning. I really have by all the kind words that have been spoken and people telling me they've been praying and looking forward to this and all of that. And one of the things you really need to know is that I really am just a human vessel and quite fallen as well. And Merlin had that exactly right. And on top of that, I have age against me now anymore too. And so things are really not the way they used to be. And so I don't know what you're expecting, but what we're going to get is what the Lord is able to crank out because left to myself, I don't amount to much. It all depends on the Lord. I thought about it this morning when I saw Merlin get out of his seat and come up here to the front, and he just sort of skipped right up those steps. Oh, the rascal, you. <laughs> because I already knew that I was going to have to find out if I could even get up here without a handrail to hang on to. And Merlin come up this side and wasn't much better. Oh, so things are different. Uh, 
I, I, this spring, in fact, just to tell you how different they are, this spring, I was early this year, actually it was in January, it wasn't spring yet, but I was preaching in southern Indiana, and it came to the point for me to get up to speak, and during that period of time when I'm supposed to be getting off the bench and getting behind the pulpit, they're all greeting each other. They'd already been instructed to stand up, shake hands with a few people, greet each other, and then sit back down. In the meantime, I'm getting up behind the pulpit, and I evidently wasn't watching what I was doing quick, uh, well enough or whatever, but as I came up the steps, when I got to the top step, somehow or other my nose found a place on the carpet. And I was just flat out on the... Thank the Lord. Most people were talking and laughing and everything else, and they didn't even see it because I might have been an old man, but I was pretty quick getting about that thing. I'll tell you, I didn't want that happening. But I am so glad you're here. And um, something else I'll have to, I'll have to catch up with on this, this time when we're here, and that is... Um, there's a lot of people sitting here this morning that I know, but I know you from different places. And so I got to figure out here just exactly who's here and what do they know about me and how have we experienced life together and things like that. Because people have heard me speaking in a number of different churches, and I'm, I'm always a little leery about when people walk up to me and say, uh, I remember something you said. I'm not sure if I should ask them what was it or if I should say, well, just forget that. I wasn't, didn't amount to anything anyway. In fact, it just, I'm amazed at people's memories. Just, just the other morning, a couple of, well, we were here in the area for the CAM meeting. I happened to be on the board for that, and then also the public meeting on Friday. And um, Cheryl and I, the first on Friday morning, came down from the motel room into the dinette area. And there was a couple sitting there, and he looked up at me, and I didn't know him from Adam's house cat, but he looked at us, and he said, Dale Keffer. Uh, yeah, where are you from? <laughs> and he said, well, we're from the East District Church, East District Mennonite Church. It's in Pennsylvania. I said, yeah, I remember. I remember. He said, I remember a sermon you preached there. Folks, it was over 40 years ago. And the man still remembered the sermon. And so I'm satisfied there's some sermons sitting out here amongst you that you may well want to come up somewhere along the line and say, I remember what you said, and I hope it wasn't embarrassing or anything that would embarrass us now. But it's really good to be here and to come back to what we're here for, and that is to preach the gospel. I, wanted, I want you to know that well, some things have changed. Some things have not changed. I have not changed my philosophy of what revival meetings are all about. I don't believe that, it's, that we really ought to be going about revival meetings by, least, by laying a great big burden on people or a guilt trip. That's probably a better term for it. I do know that it's possible that some, it really does happen that some preachers go out for revival services and they take it on themselves to give a guilt trip to everybody sitting there. And, and it's very important to some of them how many people actually respond and come walking up to the front. And I have had people ask those questions. Is anybody responding to the message anymore? And my answer to that is, well, of course they are. When the message goes out, of course they're responding to the message. It doesn't necessarily mean we're trying to get them up here to the front. If they need to come to the front, that's fine. But we're not going to be laying guilt trips on you. I don't carry a baseball bat along with me to thump you on the head with or anything like that. I'm appealing to you by the grace of God. I want you to know something about God. And because I believe this, the Bible says that thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And to me, if you come and you learn something that you never knew before, you have been revived whether you wanted to be or not. That's the way it happens. And so I'm here to teach you. That's really what I'm here for, to teach you uh, about the Scriptures. And I know you already know it, and I know you have able ministers and all of that. I understand every bit of that. But over and over again, we also learn that we don't know everything, and so when somebody comes along and gives us a little tidbit, it adds into our repertoire of what we happen to know about the Scriptures, and we appreciate that, and it equips us better to serve the Lord. And that's the philosophy that I have here. 
that I have never changed. And so I'm not here as your enemy. I'm here as your friend. I'm not here to make you feel bad. I'm here to let you know about the, the Lord and uh, hopefully increase your understanding. And in that way, you will have been revived. It just simply happens that way. Because when you learn something new, if you're like me, when you learn something new, then you're just anxious to tell somebody about it. Hey, did you ever know? Did you know that? And let me show you this. And all of a sudden, witnessing becomes something that becomes much easier when you have more things that you can share with somebody uh, to get a conversation going. So this morning, I've entitled the sermon, The Uniqueness of God, because I want to start right here. Tonight, we're going to be talking about committed to God by faith. We're going to be talking about that this evening. But this morning, the uniqueness of God, I want to point out some things about God that perhaps we never thought about before. And if you have, it's fine. I'm glad you have. But I want to talk about the uniqueness of God and how he is simply different than any other God that anybody has ever called God in the existence of the earth. He really is God. He is one and only. He is unique. There's nobody like him. And everything he does is simply the way that God does things. He's not copying anybody. He is original. And he has, uh, he has been doing his work down through the centuries in our existence here on the planet earth. So we're going to talk about his uniqueness. In Jude, Jude verse 25, doesn't have but one chapter, so Jude 25 is one verse, and it says like this, To the only wise God, our Savior, glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. The only wise God. He's the only one. There's a lot of people call on different gods, but they're not, they're not real. They don't amount to anything. It may be that they're demonically inspired and all of that, but they don't amount to this God because our God is the only wise God and, uh, and we give him praise and honor for that. In fact, in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, let me read for you what it says here. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He is unique and the way he does things is really unique. Three different sections that I want to speak on this morning, and that is, first of all, the uniqueness of God in carrying out his plan, the uniqueness of God in caring for his people, and the uniqueness of God in conquering his enemies. The first one is just a little bit, you're not going to have a whole lot of scripture that you need to turn to here this morning, because I'll just tell you where some of this is found. But in general about the Bible, I have no idea just exactly how much biblical knowledge there is here. But let me go back to the Old Testament. In fact, I have not changed on that either. Uh, I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. It's two-thirds of the Bible. And so um, I've spent more time in the Old than the New. Now, please, don't just give up on me right off the bat. Uh, hear me out here before you just take off and leave. The scriptures in the Old Testament are quite different in some respects because the first 12 chapters of the Bible are actually different than the rest of the, of the Bible is, the rest, the rest of the Old Testament. When you speak about the history of the Jews, the history of Israel, and so forth, it doesn't begin back in chapter 1. The first 12 chapters, first 11 chapters, I'm sorry, I should say, first 11 chapters of the Bible are actually Mesopotamian in nature. The earth was formed, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, I say the earth was formed, we don't know back when that was, I'm giving away my, um, my theology here now when I tell you that, we don't know when that happened. But when God moved on the waters and God moved from the face of the deep and when the world came into existence as we know it today, those first 11 chapters describe that and also describes, it didn't found in the first couple of them, but it also describes the way life was back in those days. And where was this creation? Where did it happen? It happened in what is today the country of Iraq and perhaps even down into Kuwait. Most of the Bible, as we would understand, it was written and was carried out, was, the stories happened, in a place that today we would call the land of Israel, unless you take a different political view and you'd say the land of Palestine. It was over in that section of property that's called the land bridge of the continent. 
It's for, of the continents, actually, plural. It's, it's where we, we find Africa, Asia, and Europe all coming together. And right there at the crossroads of the world is where most of the Bible took place. But the Bible doesn't start there. It starts in Mesopotamia with the story of creation. And that is a Mesopotamian story because it speaks of the land between the rivers. That's what Mesopotamia means. That's the meaning of the word. And so we know that the creation of the world, as we read about it in the first 11 chapters, happened over there in what is the country of Iraq and Kuwait today. I don't know if I'm pointing the right direction or not, but right now they're right out there, okay? And, and that's where it starts. But if you would happen to leave the biblical story over there where it began, in the Garden of Eden, if you'd leave it there, it would forever have been a local religion. It would never have gone around the world because it has to be in a place where the rest of the world can hear it and can see the effects of what happens. And so let me give you the geographical implications of the uniqueness of God in carrying out his plan. The biblical narrative begins with the Mesopotamian creation story of Genesis 1. You'll also find the story of the flood. That's also a Mesopotamian story. Uh, for the one of time, I won't prove it to you this morning. Take my word for right now, and if you want to challenge it, we'll talk about it later. But it is indeed a Mesopotamian story. But the, uh, the, uh, the uh, location, the locale of the Bible is actually changed from Mesopotamia into what is today the land of Israel, the land bridge of the continents. And why would he do that? For the same reason that when McDonald's built the store, they put it up here on the corner. They didn't put it way out in the back road somewhere. There are three, three rules of success in the business world. What is it? Location, location, location. And when these big corporations put stores in, they don't just go and say, that looks like a nice lot, let's buy that one and put it there. They come armed with traffic information. They come armed with how many people live within a certain radius of that particular spot. They even have it figured out that if you're going to be in an intersection, which one of the corners would be the best? Because which one has the most traffic facing it when they drive up to it and things like that? They go about it in a scientific way. You may not think McDonald's is a scientific burger, but they have their scientific things behind it before they start cooking them. That's the way it is, because you have to be there where everybody is. And had God kept on with the biblical narrative, over there in Kuwait, Iraq, it would have forever been isolated from the rest of the world. So what does God do? In Genesis chapter 12, you're going to find God coming on the scene, and he has Abraham, and he speaks to Abraham, get you out from this place to a land that I will show you. And we have them moving from Ur of the Chaldees, which is down in Kuwait, up into what is today the modern country of Turkey, a place called Haran, at the top of the Fertile Crescent. And then when Terah, we have the biblical patriarchal system of, of family governance at that time. And so when, when God spoke to Abraham, he was still under the dominance of his father, Terah, and we can't do anything until Terah is out of the way. And so when you follow the biblical narrative, you'll find them moving from Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran, and that's probably where they lived anyway. They were just visiting down there. At least, that's what, at least that's what the biblical scholars have to say about it. But when Terah died, then Abraham is now the patriarch of the family. He is free to follow God, and Abraham follows God down into the land bridge of the continents. It's a unique way that God saw to it that the message went to the entire world. What do you know about God? When it comes to that, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 says, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's why mission programs should go around the world, not just at home. 
but everywhere else as well. Not all of us are suited to be in cross-cultural missions. I know that. But praise the Lord, we have enough people with enough diversity, with enough different callings from God, that we can flood the whole world with the knowledge of God. We're doing it even today in ways that we're doing it that, that have never been done before. People in some of the poorest places of the earth, they can reach in their pockets and pull out the same thing I've got in mind. And the message can go around the world like it has never been able to do before. God wanted that to happen. But back in the day that we're talking about here, the only way to communicate is proximity. You have to be next to somebody in order to see them, to hear them, and to communicate with them. And so God solves the problem. He is not willing any should perish, and so what are we going to do? We're going to move the biblical narrative. And so the, when, when, Abram, when Abram followed God, and he moved from Mesopotamia down into Israel, the land bridge of the continents, it's not just, this is important, it's not just Abraham moving. It's the biblical narrative moving. And the message of God is now placed in a position where people on the trade routes traveling between the continents of that day, they could carry the message of God through there. That's what happened. The trade routes ran through there. The VMRs ran through there. Like the turnpike of the day ran through there. And the people coming from the south in Africa, if they were on their way to Europe or they were on their way to Asia, because they did travel in those days, they had the yellow brick roads too. And as they traveled, they had to come through this little spot where the knowledge of God was rampant. The knowledge of God was there. The miracles were there. The people were there. The message was there. And they carried it with them to the corners of the earth. When Jesus came on the scene, for example, you ever wondered about why he lived where he did? Why he spent most of his time where he did? I'll have to, I hate to admit to you just how dumb I was when they ordained me to start preaching the gospel. I'm telling you folks, I, I didn't know anything, hardly. Um, compared to what I hope I know now, I, I, didn't, I knew nothing. I didn't even know, you'll find this appalling, I'm sure. I didn't even know that, at that time, I didn't even know that you had a divided king, a united kingdom and a divided kingdom. I, I, now nobody pleaded, nobody said, what's that? Don't do that. I didn't know that. But when they ordained me, the Lord knew I needed some help. And he put this thing within me, a desire to buy books and read books. And I bought books and read books and bought books and read books. And lo and behold, I, I learned something. I learned something. I don't know what I was going to tell you about all that. But anyway, here's where I was before I started on that. When Jesus, oh, I was telling you how dumb I was, yeah. The first, I didn't have to say a word, did I? Just stand right up here and that's good enough. Well, anyway, I need to get back to it. I'll forget what I was going to tell you. First time Cheryl and I ever went to Israel, and we're still going today, but the first time we ever did was in 1984. And for some reason, I mean, I'd already been preaching for 10 years. In my dumbness, I, I somehow or other had it in my head that, well, Jesus, uh, Jerusalem, I mean, you know, you yeah, spent a lot of time there. I mean, surely Jesus in Jerusalem, that's sort of synonymous. He was, he was there. Yeah, but I didn't realize he only came for the festivals. I didn't realize that he didn't live there. What good would it do for him to live in Jerusalem? The message is what needs to go out. If Jesus spent all of his time in Jerusalem, he'd be sitting high on a mountain and nobody would have come by. If you went to Jerusalem, if you were in Jerusalem, it's because you were going to Jerusalem. 
I remember being up in the thumb of Michigan. Which one is it? Yeah, like this. I remember being up there at Pigeon River and heard um, Luke Yoder say it like this. He said, if you're in Pigeon River, it's because you were going to Pigeon River because nobody goes through Pigeon River to go anywhere else. And that's the way it is with Jerusalem. It's isolated from the rest of the world. No rivers run through there where boats can come by. No main travel lines come through there. No roads in that day to where people could come there. So where did Jesus, what was his intent? His intent was to get the message out. So where did he set up shop? At the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Right there on the border between the territories. And also I might tell you, right there on the turnpike of the day. The Via Maris, the way by the sea, runs straight through the city of Capernaum. And that's where he set up shop. Why would he do that? Oh, because remember Matthew the tax collector? That's where he lived. So what was he going to do? When the caravans came through, they had taxes back in those days just like we have taxes today. In fact, they had taxes we wouldn't even think of. At one point in the land of Israel, they had a tax on clocks. And so everybody threw their clocks away and they built a clock tower in the middle of the town so nobody had to pay taxes on their clocks. Then they had a tax on trees so everybody cut their trees down. Then they had a tax on windows and everybody boarded them up. There's just all kinds of things like that. Well, they had taxes in those days. And every caravan that came through, whether it was from Africa going somewhere else, from Europe or from Asia going somewhere else down to the south, every caravan that came through there had to stop and unload and Matthew and his minions would run out there and check through everything and give them their tax bill. Takes time, takes time. While they're unloading their things, while they're paying their tax and they're loading their things back up, Jesus is out here in the fields around Capernaum doing miracle after miracle. And the message, the point is, the message went around the world about the Savior from Galilee. Uniqueness of God. He knew all that. So he sets it up that way that the biblical narrative takes place in that section of, of, the, of, uh, of geography so that the message of God could go out and centuries later when Jesus came, he puts him there in that very same spot at the crossroads of the world, so to speak, and the message of Jesus went out. I'd call that unique. It's especially unique when you understand that in the Old Testament they had what they called territorial gods who would set up in this section and then in that section and that section. You may have heard of some of that even here where some of the reservations, some of the native reservations here in our country uh, had practiced their own religion, which is not Christianity. It has nothing to do with God. I've heard the stories, a particular missionary, in fact, that the moment he would cross the line into the, into the reservation, he'd immediately get sick, turn around, come back out, and he was fine. That kind of demonic oppression is territorial. They have control over certain territories. Our God has control over the whole world. He's unique in that. When the scripture talks about Jonah and he's running from God, we speak our sermons and we talk about Jonah. Oh, he was running away from God. Yes, he was. But the depth of that is he was running out of God's territory. That's what he thought. And he thought if he could get beyond God's territory, he wouldn't have to do what God wanted what he found out is that God is even in the depths of the sea, in the belly of a whale. God is everywhere, everywhere. That's the uniqueness of God. Oh, my. 
What a wonderful God we serve. That's the geographical implications of it. Let me give you also the sociological implications of it. The scripture says we're to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You know why you're sitting here in church this morning? Oh, you say, because I got up. No, I'm talking about the whole background of that. Why do we have churches in America today? It's because there came a day. There came a day when the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, I've forgotten which chapter it is or I'd tell you. You can look it up. It's back toward the back. 22 or 3, somewhere in there. He was speaking in Jerusalem. He came into the temple and there was a riot. And he asked for the privilege to speak. And the Bible makes the notation that, and when they heard that he spoke in Hebrew, that's the temple language, they calmed down. And they listened to his whole discourse as he was speaking. And then, at the end of what he was saying, he said, God has, he said it in Hebrew, the holy temple language. He said, God has called me to the Gentiles. And at that, everything broke loose. They were so furious that they, they scrounged around on the ground and found any dirt they could and threw it up in the air. I mean, they were beside themselves. And the Antonia Fortress was right there as a part of the temple sitting on the side there. And the Roman governor came out and took Paul into custody for his own protection. From there, he was moved to Caesarea Maritima. He was moved there for his own safety. Remember the little boy heard about those that had decided we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. Paul said, go and tell somebody more important than me about that. And so they took him from there and carried him over where he stayed in Caesarea Maritima for a couple of years. Stood trial a couple of times and then he made what some people would say a mistake. He said, I appeal to Caesar. They said, to Caesar you shall go. That's when the knowledge of God moved across the sea and the push toward the west took place. Because that happened, we in the west have the knowledge of God like we would have never had had it not come this direction. And that's how God got it here. And to get it even further, he got it to Rome, which is the western world. And then we have the European settlers who come to America. And the knowledge of God came with them. There's a thing called British colonialism. You remember reading, hearing this when you were in school? That at one time the British Empire was so large that the sun never set on it. You know what they mean by that? It was spread out across the time zones to such an extent that somewhere the sun was shining on the British Empire all the time. Somewhere. It was that big. Nowhere near that today. But it was then. And they were colonizing. Actually, they were raping the countries is what was happening. They were tearing people apart. They were taking slaves. They were taking artifacts. The Sphinx, for example, in Egypt. You know what I'm talking about? This big thing that sits out there. He doesn't have a beard, but he used to. That's what propped his head up. That's why every once in a while you'll see a news article about his head is about to come off because it's eroding. But if it had left it like it was, it wouldn't have to worry about falling off because he had a beard that came down to the ground. You want to know where the beard is? In the British Museum. They did that around the world. That's why Britain is so wealthy today. They did that kind of a thing. But let's look for the good. The good was that everywhere the soldiers went, the missionaries came behind them. I'm not telling you that's the greatest thing that ever happened. But I'm telling you there will be people in heaven 
who would not have been there had it not been for the missionaries following the soldiers. That happened in modern days when the Gulf War took place, the first Gulf War took place. It happened there for the first time in centuries because of the soldiers that had to come into Saudi Arabia to protect them from Saddam Hussein and what was happening. They brought with them Christian people who had a Christian testimony across the sands of Arabia that had not been there in centuries. It was there because there were soldiers who took the name of Christ with them. We can debate the non-resistance later. That's what happened. If you're Jewish, you'd love to hear this, that for the first time in centuries and centuries, the sound of the shofar celebrating the festivals of Israel according to the Bible rang out across the desert sands that would never have happened had it not been for what happened in that war. The uniqueness of God in getting those things out. Oh my. Let's move on. The uniqueness of God in caring for his people. We've heard mention made this morning about heaven. Isn't it wonderful? This isn't all there is. All the troubles and the trials and disappointments and the heartaches and all of that. Every time we leave home, we pull the plug to the water pump just in case something goes wrong and floods the house. It won't happen. We won't be able to do it. We look out for stuff like that. You know what? When we get to heaven, there ain't going to be no more plugs to be pulled. There won't be any more medicines to have to take. I won't have to remember to get shaving cream. I don't need much anyway, but wouldn't have to, won't have to. None of that. Heaven is our home. And every so often we are reminded loud and clear, this is not our home here. It's not. The uniqueness of God is that this is not our hope. This is not our home. This is the prelude. This is the qualification, if you please, to be able to go to a prepared place. John chapter 14 is that famous scripture that is used quite often in funeral services. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, and so forth. That. That. It's a prepared place. It's also a protected place. You won't have to lock your doors anymore. Maybe some of you don't now. We do. We live in a place where if I pull into the, if I pull into our garage of a mason, uh, not a mason building, it's shoes. It's a Morton building. When I pull my pickup in there in the evening, the door goes up, the door goes down, the truck gets locked. It's simply, the, that's the society we're living in. I, I suppose our mansions will have doors on them. I suppose they will, but I don't really know that. I don't really know much about heaven compared to what it's going to be like. We won't have to worry about danger. I don't have to be concerned. Our granddaughters, are, both of them went to, went to college out in Liberty University. It's about 200 miles away from us. And they'd make that trip by themselves, back and forth. They came home to visit and went back out and all of that, you know. I'm sorry, folks. I'm really not a really good Christian about this, but I would worry about them until we got the call. They're there. Whew, thank you, Lord. Thank you. When we get to heaven... None of that. Let me tell you, God, in caring for his people, has also given us not only an eternal home, he's given us an enduring hope because he is all-powerful. I don't have to worry about anybody taking God on and winning. He's not only all-powerful, he's all-knowing. He also, in caring for his people, gave us an earthly help 
There are miracles and there are provisions. The Lord's Prayer even talks about that. Give us this day our daily bread. Before I run totally out of time, let me move on. The uniqueness of God in conquering his enemies by the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this, that if the princes of this world would have known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God didn't go into hand-to-hand combat with the devil. He didn't do that. We don't have any kind of an all-out war where the forces of heaven fought the forces of evil and it was, they had it out like that. What we have is Jesus, God's gift to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if, if, the, if the miracle of salvation, I don't know how else to put it, the miracle of salvation, the knowledge of salvation, if that would have been common knowledge, this is how God is going to conquer evil. If we would have known exactly what was going to happen, so would the devil. Because we did have a soft side to our, to our salvation. Had Jesus not died, we'd have no salvation. The devil thought he was going to kill him, put an end to his nemesis. And when he did, he fell right into the trap that God had set for him. Except for this. It's a misnomer to say that the devil killed him. It's a misnomer to say that anybody else killed him. He gave up his life. Nobody took it. He gave it up. That's what happened. He gave it up. But if the princes of this world would have understood the plan of salvation, they could have thwarted it by simply backing away and not bringing the circumstances to bear that came in putting Jesus on the cross. They didn't know. That's the uniqueness of God. Furthermore, it's not just by the blood of Christ. It's also by the working of his spirit. No man comes to the Father except I draw you. The Holy Spirit is the one that illuminates us in the scriptures and furthermore illuminates us when it comes to understanding Jesus and salvation. And very quickly yet, the uniqueness of God is shown by the dedication of his saints. What do I mean by that? You know, back in colonial days, when the word of God was going out into the four corners of the earth, back into the darkest places of the world, Missionaries were going out there. They were not only encountering savages and people who had no concept of God whatsoever. They were encountering diseases that nobody had ever heard of before. Missionaries were going out and they were dying. Can you imagine being on a mission board in those days and asking for volunteers to go to the mission field because the common practice was? They didn't buy crates to ship their belongings. They bought caskets. And they put their belongings into a casket to be shipped to the, for, to the front where they were, knowing that in two years or less, they would need the casket. Can you imagine a mission program with that kind of pressure on the other side? And yet, the dedication of God's people shows the reality of what God is all about. There's also these people that have given their lives for Christ in other ways as well. I'll give you just one yet. If you, were back in, if you were living in 1956, you would have heard the story of the Alka Indians, the Wadani people. If that doesn't mean anything to you, think of Jim Elliott, uh, Nate Saint, and there were three others who died there. A few years back, we were in Pigeon Forge for, the, for Christmas, and I always looked for bookstores and went into one, picked up a book, and called it the edge, of the, the edge of the Spear, The End of the Spear. Yeah. It was a story written by Steve Saint, the son of Nate. And he told the story 
I wasn't much of a vacation kind of a guy then because I read the book, I think, in two days. I just couldn't take my eyes off of it. Just read and read and read about the story of what happened down there. And the wonderful progress that Christianity made, that God made into the, into the back countries, the back area of, uh, of uh, Ecuador. And then there came a time after that when we watched the film. And then they came out with um, study materials. We got those for our church to study on a Wednesday night. And in one scene, Steve Saint is sitting behind his desk and he says this, and what he said evoked the most serious and sustained conversation, discussion we have ever had in our church. He said, I have come to believe, for those of us who can't really understand, and I'm one of them, why does God do the things the way he does? I don't know. I don't know if it's his purpose. And Steve said this, I have come to believe that God intended for my father to die. And he went on to say, and don't be surprised by that, because he intended for his own son to die. Folks, that's the God we serve. He is unique, all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient, everywhere. It's the God we serve. I want you to come back tonight. I want to talk to you about being committed to him by faith. Heavenly Father, bless this gathering today. Would you have taken your spirit and added a blessing onto what's been said? That in the ears of those who have heard, it would make sense. So, Father, bless us as we leave this place today. Looking forward to being back here again tonight. We love you. We trust you. We are committed to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Merlin said I could end any way I want to. I said it would depend on how close I am to the finish line. Why don't you just stand on your feet? And the minute you get on your feet, you're all dismissed. We'll see you tonight, okay? Come, 6 o'clock. <laughs>